So open your sermon text to Psalm 72, and please stand for the reading of God's word. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound, till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who have no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings evoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, On the tops of mountains, may it wave. May it be like fruit of Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, it, is, it is a joy to be here this morning. I feel at home. I feel excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this since I got invited to preach here, to come back. I was surprised that you asked me to come back. Uh, I really was. Um, and I was in, even more excited when uh, I realized um, that you guys are praying for us as a church plant, um, that your elders are committed to helping us get off the ground and by praying and giving and loving on us in amazing ways. And so this is, this is a joy for me in multiple ways. Um, this is also for me a, uh, this is also for me hard. This is a difficult season to preach in. Um, especially like the passage that we're going to go through today. I don't know what your level of, of interaction with politics are, is. I'm, I don't have really good grammar, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know what your level of interaction with politics are. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you who you voted for or anything like that. Well, no. Um, but it's, it's, been, it's, it's difficult. And so one of the things that we talked about earlier in our pre-service, and I love Edward, that dude is intense. <laughs> like, intense. And you guys, he is, a, he is a blessing. Like, 
Man, so, yeah, I wish I could convince him to come plant with me. Uh, but there would be a lot of people who are mad at me uh, for good reason. But we were in our uh, pre-service uh, talk, and we, were, uh, and we finished so quickly um, that one of the things that we didn't get to fully flesh out was some of the things that are stealing our joy when we walked in here. And there's no way, there's no way, I do not believe you. I, have, I absolutely, if you tell me that, that turning on the news every day does not cause you to have to fight for joy. Well, maybe you're superhuman, but for me, it is a fight. Sometimes my, I can't even, I can't watch it. For, for that reason, it makes it hard to believe the passage that we're going to talk about today because as a result of a passage like this, we all have in our mind a type of leader uh, that we think we should have. We all have in our mind the type of king that we think we should have, the type of pastor or leader that we think we deserve and should have. And it's usually rooted around some type of selfish motivation or some type of desire to keep us from losing something or for, because we don't want something taken away. And that's sometimes generally how we even vote for that matter is just simply out of fear. And so a lot of what we've been through, and it's not just this season of of politics or administration, this has been ongoing in our world, in in, in our society, in our democratic uh, political climate. It is ongoing. It is always a fight to believe that there is a king who sits on the throne and who reigns supreme and he has our best interests in our hearts and that he is sovereign and that he loves his people and that he's interacting because when you turn on the news, it feels like that's not true. But I want you to know that there is a God who sits on the throne There is a man named Jesus who is king, and he has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten me, and I need to hear that so much. And I need to believe that, and I need to fight for that. So will you pray for me right now? Will you pray that the Holy Spirit will begin to work in my heart? Will you pray that the Holy Spirit will begin to speak through me boldly so that he will melt your hearts and whatever frustration and bitterness that is going on in your hearts right now, where you find it very hard to believe that God is sovereign, that God is in control despite whatever is going on in your home, in your city, in your state, in your country, and in your world. Pray with me. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. We pray that your kingdom will come and that your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Father, we pray that you would, this word would be our daily bread, that it would nourish our soul, and that you would be our comforter, that you would be our peace, and that you would reign supreme in our hearts, and that we would joyfully submit to you as our Lord and Savior. Father, we ask that you would return soon in your Son, Jesus. And Father, we even ask that, if it at all possible, that you would come before this sermon ends. But if, if not, Lord, would you give us the strength to, to live in this world? 
to be image bearers of your glory, that we can fill this earth and by proclaiming your name despite the circumstances, that we can proclaim your name, your son's name, Jesus, as great and awesome and beautiful, that we can tell the world that in spite of what's going on, that Jesus saves sinners. Father, will you give me the power and the boldness and the courage to proclaim your word? Will you give your people the ears and hearts to receive it? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So today we're in Psalm 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 97. Right? No? Which Psalm are we in? All right, thank you. I just want to make sure you're with me. Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is a very interesting passage. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prayer by a king, for a king. And it's a very difficult time for this king. His dad is on his deathbed. Uh, things haven't panned out as much as he would like it to. And ultimately, he has realized he's come to a point in his ministry, I particularly believe, where he is not the king that he thought he would be. And so now he's not only looking in the past of his, of his dad, but he's also looking forward to the next king and hopeful of the next king, that he would model a level of godliness that past kings have not been able to model. And for that reason, it's always been this idea, and it's, it's even been that way for us, where we think about a leader, we think about the king that we want. It happened in Samuel, even in the first king, where things were going good for Israel, and they all of a sudden they said, we want a king. And then he said, no, like if you get a king, he's going to oppress you, he's going to take your woman, he's going to take your cattle, he's going to take your land. Like, no, nah, we want a king, and we want a king like them. And so ultimately, it was always this idea of this king that we wanted. And even now, it's always, in some ways, sometimes in the back of our minds, it's this king that we want. We want this king who will do what we want when he wants, sort of like this genie-like king. And so Solomon, what he does here in his prayer, is he goes beyond the superficial, and he tells us the king that we need. And so as we walk through this, we're simply going to do that and just show you that Jesus is the just king who rules the nations, saves the oppressed. Therefore, all who submit under his reign will be blessed uh, by him and be a blessing to others. And so today we're just going to simply walk through this. And as we walk through, I want to show you four very distinct characteristics of this king that we need. We're going to see a, a righteous king who establishes justice. And then we're going to see a global king who rules the nations. And then we'll see a compassionate king that protects the oppressed. And then finally, we'll see a king who restores creation and order. So let's look at the first one. This king uh, who, who, this righteous king who establishes justice. And let's look at the very first verse the psalmist begins the very, with a very specific prayer, and that prayer is this. He says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to your royal son. Who does the righteousness and justice belong to? It's okay, you can talk. 
God. Awesome. And so God, the, the righteousness and justice belongs to God. There is, and what we see very clearly is that Solomon believes that there is no justice or righteousness that is true apart from the living God. And all that he is saying is that this, when he talks about justice and when he talks about righteousness, I know those words are catchphrases and buzzwords, but ultimately what he's saying is that any king must be able to act decisively and faithfully. In Solomon's eyes, in Solomon's eyes, there is only one way to do that. There is only one source of this justice and righteousness this ability to always be able to act decisively and fairly and faithfully. And he's saying that this can only come from God. That justice and righteousness, not only it belongs to God, but if for a king to, to function this way, it has to come from God. And so his very first request for this king is that this king would be uh, uh, just like God that he would be uh, full of God's justice and full of God's righteousness. Verse 2, he says this, and all all the way through from verse 2 to verse 7, we're going to see the implications of what it looks like to have a king who is is just and who is righteous. Starting at verse 2, he says, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor people and 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 your poor with justice. Verse 2, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor people and your poor with justice. The people do not belong to the king. You notice that? He says, may he judge your people. He's talking to God. So these aren't the king's people. These are God's people, and therefore the king becomes a royal steward, so to speak. Among any people, you'll find uh, powerful and you'll find those who are weak, those with, with and those without. It's, it's natural. You'll find it in any uh, community, any country, any state, any place that you go, you'll find poor and you'll find rich. Even in a poor country, you'll still find people with more and people with less, people with and people without. And it seems here that... Um, uh, among the powerful and among the weak, that God's solution or that even Solomon's solution is to commission people and authority to care for the weak through acting with God's righteousness and with God's justice. In other words, a king who would hold in high regard the same things God would, who would discipline the same sin that God would. Instead of preference or personal offense, God's holiness becomes the standard for justice versus the king's own opinion. This is where Solomon and other kings failed to begin. To, they, they started to deviate from God's law, and they begin to uh, make it up as they go, and they begin to add to God's law. And as a result of that, they begin to do things that were benefit themselves and to serve their own pleasures. And we do this as parents, don't we? We oftentimes, in, uh, as leaders and authority figures over our house, it's just like God has given the king authority over people and the steward God has given our children. Oh, to, for us, the steward, ultimately they don't belong to us, they belong to God, and he's given them to us, the steward. But oftentimes when we discipline them, it's usually because they irritated us. 
It's usually because they bothered us versus disciplining them for the things that God would discipline them for. Think about it. When was the last time you disciplined your child for not being thankful or, or for grumbling and complaining? And in the Bible, it constantly talks about those are the things that will kill you. Those are the things that God hates. And so it's the same here in, in this text. This king is supposed to be a king who rules uh, with God's justice and with God's righteousness. And as a result of that, he declares sin what God declares sin. He declares evil what God declares evil. He declares good what God declares good. And then on in verse 3, he says, The mountains will bear prosperity for the people. There is a moral connection between the way society organizes itself and its experience of prosperity as a result of this king ruling justly. As a result of this king ruling righteously, uh, there is a deep connection in which the way the, orga- the society organizes itself and doesn't give too many details of the implications of that. But we can begin to realize that, man, what happens when we have a righteous king and a just king and how that affects culture and society and the world that we live in. Then verse 4, he says, this king, he defends the cause of the poor. He uses his authority to not only leverage it for others in power, but he ex- exercises his authority uh, to not only leverage it for other people uh, for, in power, but also for the poor. He takes decisive action to deliver the oppressed, even if it means executing proper judgment over those who prey on the weak. So this king recognizes that it's not enough to rescue and empower the oppressed, but also to do what is necessary to, to stop the offender and build a structure that will prevent it from happening again. And so it's both and. It's just this righteous and just king who doesn't just pull a person out of oppression, but he crushes the oppressor. He doesn't just remove the person that's called, uh, remove the person out of poverty, but he crushes the system that creates the poverty. And in this case, especially during this time, one of the biggest things that would cause poverty is loss of land. And so people would constantly be manipulating people to cause them to have to lose their land, whether it's forcing them into debt or forcing them into tricking in terms of boundaries or, 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 or lineage or heritage. And, and the moment you lost your land, you were immediately considered poor. And so it's not just... It's not just restoring those who are poor, but it's crushing what's involved in creating the poverty. Verse 5, people will reverence you. When a king acts as God would, it brings God glory. Even the oppressors fear fear God, and and it is everlasting from generation to generation. Verse 6, Another implication of this righteous and just king is that the land flourishes. He describes the king as showers uh, that, that water the earth. Another translation says, like heavy rain overflowing the earth. With water, every, without water, everything dies. Like if I, if I stand up here long enough, it'd be, it wouldn't be good. Right? Most of us are experiencing this now, those with lawns, where... It gets just ridiculously hot, and, and you're now trying to think about, should I water my lawn? Should I not water my lawn? How long should I water it? 
Most of us have gardens that we like to grow, and we all know that nothing happens, nothing grows that is healthy without water. And so he, this king who acts with justice and righteousness is like an ever-flowing of water to God's people. He brings life instead of taking it. Verse 7, God answers, answered prayer will mean that the faithful will flourish and that the fruit of the kings commit to standing by the faithful. Meaning this, regardless of what's happening around them, this king is a, is a faithful king and that God's people are flourishing and that those who are faithful under this king's reign will benefit from the fruit of this king. So Solomon, it seems here, is praying for a king who can act with the justice and righteousness of God. And there were moments where it seemed like this king had arrived, especially in uh, a guy like David, but he failed too. He took advantage of the weak, and then he tried to cover up his mess with lies and murder. Solomon turned his back to God with idol worship and overwhelmed and became overwhelmed with power and, and greed and wealth. So even Solomon, as he's praying, he knows it will not be him. And he's ultimately praying that one of his sons will be this type of king. So we've seen over and over and over again that, that, that yes, although this king seems so close to gra- in our grabs that this, this king just doesn't exist. This righteous and just king who does the right thing at the right time, all the time, who acts decisively. He doesn't have to wait. He thinks the way God thinks. He acts the way God acts. And yet, over and over and over again, we see that this king does not exist here. So the first thing we see is in this characteristic of the king that we need, we need a king who will act justly and righteously. But also we need a global king. We need a global king who rules the nations, verses 8 through 11. We'll see that this, this king is not just a local councilman. This king is not just a mayor. This king is not just a senator or a president. He's not even an emperor. He's something more. He's something greater than. And what sets this king apart from the rest is that his overflowing reign the rain, the water that flows, that it doesn't just benefit his people. It, 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 it pours out into the entire nation. Look at verse 9, or starting at verse 9. It says his enemies will bow down to him. They call them desert tribes or uh, 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 desert dwellers, or uh, it's possibly an allusion to a demonic presence. And then it says, like, they will lick the dust to demonstrate that these people, his enemies, will lie prostrate, head, on, head to the ground, right? So this is, a, this is a global king where all of his enemies come to his foot, feet, and they bow down before him, where spiritual forces bow down before him. This is not a weak king. This is a powerful global king that not only has authority over the, the, the known world, but he has authority over the universe and over, over the spiritual world as well. This king has a, 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 verse 10, as a genuine sign of submission, 
You see kings come, uh, come, come from far, as far as from Spain and Arabia to honor the king. It says they come from all over the place, from the ends of the earth. They're coming with treasure and they're coming with gifts to, and they demonstrate their submission to this king. Verse 11, they bow down and they serve him. And we have seen for in, in our day up until now, we've seen plenty of kings accomplish a lot of things. We've seen the Persians' empire expand their kingdom from Greece all the way to India. We've seen Alexander, who was able to beat the Persians by a couple of hundred miles. We've seen Rome was able to acquire a little bit more territory to the north, but they even figured out how to govern all of it for a little while. But these kings were short-lived in comparison to the whole world. Their reach was very short in comparison to the whole world. They were not the king that, they, that we need. These were not the kings that we needed. These were the kings that people wanted. These were the kings that, that fought and scraped and clawed and connived and manipulated to get into a position of authority and power. But the beautiful part of that is God is still sovereign. God was sovereign over all of it. It is God who places kings and who tears them down. It's God who puts kings in their power and who takes them out of power. And so God is well aware of what's going on. But ultimately, he's saying these are not the king that you need. This is not the king. Solomon is saying, I am not him, just by his prayer alone. Right? So finally, we come, or, or third characteristic, we see uh, a compassionate king who protects the oppressed, verses 12 through 14. And so God, in his, by his nature, is a rescuer, and therefore a king must be. In the garden, God rescues Adam and Eve from themselves and removes them from the garden to prevent them from eating from the tree, from the other trees to keep them from killing themselves. And throughout the Bible, God doesn't discriminate on who he rescues. He rescues poor people, blind people, sick people. He rescues kings. He rescues prostitutes. He does not discriminate. Our God is a rescuer. He is a deliverer. He's a savior. And this prayer demands that they, our king be one as well. He is a rescuer. He rescued you of all people. He rescued me of all people. And so therefore, our king must be. Um, verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. Here the object of the king's deliverance are the poor and needy, especially those who are crying out for help. You see that? These are the poor and needy who are crying out for help, who recognize that their situation is really bad and it cannot get any better without help, without outside influence or power. So these people are crying out for help. These are audible cries that, and those with that those with authority have no excuse for not helping. This king will act the same way God would. This king hears those cries. He listens and he acts. And this, God is our great helper, who hears our cries, and the king should do the same. In other words, the king does not ignore the cries, nor does the simple, 
nor does he simply pray and leave it to God. He will act as God has. So for many of us here today, we are crying out for help for many different reasons. Some of us are parents and we're overwhelmed. Some of us are, are, are businessmen and, our, and, our, and work isn't going the way they should. Some of us have family members who are experiencing high levels of, of hurt, whether through drug addiction or whether through poverty. Some of us are deeply connected to, a, to nonprofit organizations that is constantly serving those who can't serve themselves. And you're crying out, asking people for help, and you're just not getting it. I want you to know that God hears those cries. I want you to know that God hears your cry. Some of you are just choosing not to cry out because you're thinking, what's the point? Maybe if I just pull up, pull myself up by my own bootstraps, then I will figure it out and then God will be pleased. Well, it doesn't work that way. Our God loves to rescue us. Our God loves to save us. And each time it looks so different. It may not mean a bank account full of money, but it may mean a, a brother or sister in your church who just shows up with groceries. It may not mean that you're perfectly healed and all your diseases go away and now you're free from any cancer that riddles your body. But it may mean that a brother or sister comes and sits with you and reads the Psalms with you and prays with you and sings with you and God fills you with just a, such a level of joy and he says, I hear your cries. I want you to know very clearly, do not walk away without any knowing anything else but our God hears you. Our God is a universal God who hears your cries. And not only that, but he has placed you in a church that will hear your cries. And he has placed you under leadership and authority who will hear your cries. And they will not just write it down in a book and pray about it, but they will come alongside of you and they will live life with you and they will serve you and it may just may mean, and this is very hard for us to understand, this is very hard for us to grasp, but it just may mean someone sitting by your bedside singing you to glory. It may mean somebody just simply cooking you a meal. It may mean that somebody shares the gospel with you and you get to know Jesus for the very first time. I'll keep going. He says this, verse 13. He has pity. He has pity for the weak and the needy, and he saves the lives of the needy. To put this in perspective, once again, we're talking about a compassionate king. This is the king we need. We need a compassionate king who protects the oppressed. And in verse 13, he says, this king pities the weak and needy. And he saves the lives of the needy. So I want to put this in perspective with you. And the best way I can do that is I can use Jonah as a great illustration. So Jonah was a prophet. I don't know why, but for some reason, I always imagine Jonah as a very small man. I don't know, maybe because of his lack of courage or maybe because I'm just trying to imagine him actually fitting in the well. I mean, yeah, in the well. Or the big fish, I'm sorry. 
And so there's a guy, there's a prophet named Jonah. He's been told to go to Nineveh to call this, this, this country to repentance. This country is known as an evil country. It's called, it's, called known, it's called a great and evil country. And so as a result of that, Jonah doesn't want to have anything to do with this, these people, so he runs the opposite direction. As a result of his disobedience, he gets swallowed whole by a great fish. God providentially preserves Jonah's life in this fish. And he would do like all of us would do if we got swallowed by a fish. And he started calling out to God for help. And he repented. And so God allowed this fish to spit him out. So he makes a beeline to Nineveh. And he calls them to repent. And they actually do. Even the king repents. And this makes Jonah furious. He's angry. And that brings us to Jonah chapter 4. And in Jonah chapter 4, he says, I told you, this is him talking to God. And so I can I imagine him doing like this. this. I told you they would repent. And now he's angry and he's throwing a tantrum and he's depressed and he just wants to die. So this, this disrespectful uh, little man is pointing his finger at God and he wants to quit ministry and he wants to die and God still has mercy and pity on him and he allows this leaf to grow over him to protect him from the sun. And then in Jonah 4 it says this, but when dawn came up next, the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry Angry enough to die. Feels like a parent talking to a child. Are you being disobedient? Yes. Level of arrogance. Yes, I, yes, I, I do well to be angry. Angry to die. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? So unlike Jonah, the king is supposed to share in God's pity. That was a problem with Jonah. He did not have the same pity for these people that God did. He didn't think they were worthy of God's grace. He didn't think they were worthy of God's mercy. They were beneath him. So why should he go? God says you have more pity for a plant than you do for a people. How is that? He says this, unlike, it says, uh, a person who do who not know their right hand from their left like, and have much cattle. They have a lot of stuff, but they're confused. They're lost. Like you have more pity for this plant that withers and dies than you do 
for these people. In this case, pity is the motivation for action, not just for God, but for human beings who have been empowered to act as God would. What's incredibly distinctive of this king is that he has the heart and the courage to act out of his identification with human beings. He has the the courage and the heart to identify with the poor and needy. He sees them as people made in God's image, and therefore he is able to not only just pity them, but also to act. And then finally, verse 14 says, He frees them from oppression and violence. He redeems their life. Precious is their blood in his sight. So these same people who have become oppressed, who have become poor due to violence, through the shedding of blood, these people are precious to God. These people are special to God, not because they can do something, not because they can preach a sermon, not because they can uh, exegete Hebrew or Greek, not because they are great philanthropists and they give all these things and they can do all of these great things, but they're precious because they're His. He made them. He created them in His image. They belong to Him. And so for that reason, they are precious. These people are precious to Him, and therefore the King that we need needs to see us as precious. Not just me, not just brown people, not just Asian people, not just white people, not just soldier, not just the U.S. He needs to see all people made in God's image as precious. That's the king that we need. And then finally, we need a king who renews creation, verses 15 through 17. And so ultimately, all through those verses, we see very clearly that this king will restore the land. This king will put things right back into order. This king will make things new. So as a result, uh, this king has uh, um, um, uh, authority over the earth, authority over the spiritual world, authority over us. And so back in the garden... Adam and Eve rebelled in, against God, and part of that rebellion was the curse of the, of the land. And so every time that we want to yield any fruit from the land, it's going to cause us to have to do some back-breaking labor. And God promised prosperity in the land to Israel if they were faithful and trusted God. But Israel com- continued to fail to do so. And so every time that Israel had an opportunity to please God, there was always land and blessing involved. But it required faithfulness. And every time, Israel messed it up. And so as a result of that, we were unable to be faithful. And as a result of that, the land continues to be cursed. We need a king who has authority not over just over us, not just over the world, but over the actual land. And we see that in only one king. We see all of this in only one king because king after king had failed. Even the powerful kings failed. And they failed to reverse the trail of destruction left behind by their predecessor. The fact that this prayer goes unanswered under the current king makes the people hope 
for a coming king. That hope was fueled by the promises of God's prophets. Repeatedly, they spoke of a new David who would rescue and restore order and reign on God's behalf. So in a way, this prayer becomes a prophecy, a description of the king who would come until the day an angel appears to a teenage girl named Mary. And he says this, Luke 1, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. you got to say amen to that. There will be no end. This psalm finds its fulfillment. The psalm that we've just read finds its fulfillment in Jesus and teaches us what it means to live under his reign. It teaches us about the king that we need It was Jesus who declared in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the liberty to the captives and and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then later he says, this is me. I'm talking about me. And as a result, some believe and then the rest conspire to kill him. But it is, it is Jesus who is our king. Jesus is the king that we need. Jesus is the one who will end oppression and reign in justice. Jesus is the one who will establish justice. Jesus is the global king where nations bow down to him and are blessed through him. You see this very clearly where as soon as Jesus is born, what happens? Men from the east come to give tribute to him and they bow down to him and they submit to him. In Luke 7, a centurion sends a delegation to ask Jesus to save his servant. Even the Roman centurion sees Jesus' authority and submits to his kingship. Jesus receives, Jesus understands the the authority and kingship of Jesus, and as a result of that, he receives Jesus' blessing. And this continues through the church. We continue as God's church, as Jesus' bride, to go forth to proclaim this great message that Jesus is king. That is the very gospel that we proclaim, that he is a king who saves. And so every time us, we as a church, walk out these doors and go and proclaim the good news that Jesus, our king, is alive and he saves sinners, we are doing the very thing uh, that Jesus has done and told us to do. And as a result of that, it is us submitting to Jesus as king. It is us submitting to his reign as king. So Jesus is also the king who restores creation and order. He has authority over the seas, authority over the spiritual world, authority over, over even death. Jesus is the king who is making all things new. So, you do not know Jesus as your king. None of this matters until he first reigns in your heart. 
If you do not submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior, our first call as, cre- as his creation, our first and, and, and necessary thing that we must do is call out and cry out for help and ask him based on the, the, his life and death and resurrection on the cross, based on his perfect life as fully God and fully man, based on him submitting himself and, t- and, and taking on flesh, based on him dying on the cross, based on him sharing blood, shedding blood, based on him dying for us, based on him defeating death and conquering sin, based on him now reigning on the throne. In order for this to mean anything, he first must reign in our hearts. So there are people among you right now, I would really implore you to find someone who is a member or pastor of this church. So what does it mean for Jesus to reign in your heart? I am crying out for help. Here we have a king that we need because he's the king we can never be. Solomon could not save you. David could not save you. Persian emperors, Roman rulers, presidents, governments, parents, yourself. Those may be the kings that you want including yourself, but they are not the king that we need. Jesus is the king that we need because he is the king that we can never be. He is the king that we can't create. He is the king that we can't elect. He is the king that we can't remove. Psalm 2 makes it very clear. We cannot impeach Jesus. We cannot remove him from the throne. He is there right now laughing at his enemies who continuously try. He is the king that we need. He is the answer to every question. He is the king we're longing for, and he is the king that we already have. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for King Jesus. We don't take lightly that to be under his lordship, to be under his rule and his authority is a privilege. I pray that it would not be something that we see as a duty or a burden, but as a joy. I pray that even in our sin that we wouldn't run from him, but that we would run to him. Pray that we would see him as our savior, as our rescuer, as our deliverer. I pray that we'd never stop crying out to him. I pray that we would constantly know that he is on the throne, even when the world is trying to tell us that he's not. So, Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So right now we're about to uh, take communion. We didn't read the last several verses of Psalm, but it's a beautiful doxology where it talks about blessing God and being blessed by God and and feeling the whole earth 
with his glory because of him, because of his blessing, because we have a king who sits on the throne. And here to be filled with God's glory is to be a holy site of worship where God makes his presence known. And this prayer is that, that we just read is that the whole earth be such a sanctuary. The prayers of David says are ended. This could refer to the psalm itself, but more likely refers to a stage of collections of psalms that have just ended. But for us, this psalm doesn't end. For us, we get to share in the glory of God. For us, we get to bless God. We get to worship God. We get to make much of God. And one of the amazing ways that God has allowed us to do that is through the communion, where we get to share in his death and resurrection. So if Jesus does not reign in your heart right now, we ask that you would pass on this. And the reason why is because the, red, the bread represents the body that was torn and the blood and the juice represents the blood that was spilled. And so we ask that you would hold off on that until Jesus reigning in your body is true and is real and is, and is, and is as real as this, this podium in front of us today. But for those of you who, who, who do believe that Jesus reigns in your heart, where you submitted to Jesus as Lord, we ask you to participate in remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and tearing of his flesh and spilling of his blood. Let us join in communion.